I think a lot of our success with the people that have stayed with us for a good period of time has been new to the industry individuals. So they've come in with maybe the attributes or some exposure to sales and we've brought them into Stellar and sort of trained them up our way and exposed them to our way of doing things. Hi, this is Mark Whitby and welcome to The Resilient Recruiter. In today's episode, you'll meet Sean McCambridge. Sean is the co-founder of Stellar Recruitment, a company with 100 staff and six offices in Australia and New Zealand. They've recently celebrated making 20,000 placements, or to use their words, changing 20,000 lives. As you're about to hear, Sean is a truly inspiring leader who has a ton of insight on what it takes to build a world-class company. So if you have ambitions to scale your business, stay tuned. In this episode, we chat about hiring recruiters. He takes us through his very well thought out four-step interview process with lots of great tips born of hard-won experience hiring lots of people. We also talk about employee engagement and staff retention. You can't build a great business unless you hold on to your performers and develop them. Speaking of development, we also discuss mindset and investing in personal growth. In Sean's words, the staff will only grow to the level of the leadership. With that in mind, he travels regularly to the US and attends executive education programs at MIT and Harvard. Once you meet Sean, you'll understand why Stellar's growth has been, well, stellar. Sean, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. Awesome. I think your head office is in Brisbane, is that right? Yeah, Brisbane, Australia, that's the one. I forgot to tell you, there's a docudrama on TV called Ambulance, and the latest season was filmed in Queensland. I don't know if you've seen this. I, I don't normally watch these kind of shows, but my <laughs> brother-in-law, Matt, is a paramedic in Brisbane, and he's featured in one of the episodes. So if anyone out there listening is watching this show, Ambulance, then you'll, you'll recognize my brother-in-law because he's the only guy with a Scottish accent. On this <laughs> so, um, listen, I've got a lot I want to ask you. I've been doing my homework and you've got so many interesting things going on at Stellar. Why did you start Stellar? What was the vision for the, for the business originally, Sean? Well, we started Stellar. Uh, I was, uh, I, I think I was quite fortunate. I started at Hayes as a, as a training consultant. I got some wonderful training and really sort of set me, uh, set me up for, I guess, falling in love with the recruitment. And, and I was fortunate enough to have a bit of early success within the Hayes environment, which is great. Built some really, really good uh, customer relationships and um, was able to sort of bridge that and deliver for them and sort of build my career within a really great team at, at Hayes and, and the team I left was a high-performing team. I think the month we left, let, I left, uh, we built about 560K between eight of us. So it was highly productive, but the dynamic was uh, it was awesome because you had a, a group of like-minded competitive people, but not so competitive that it was, you know, cut people off of the past uh, to beat them. It was sort of competitiveness that sort of brought out the best in one another and we had a lot of trust and respect and, and uh, it was just a great high-performing environment. And I sort of said to myself at the time, wouldn't it be cool if we could replicate this high-performing environment, I guess, in a more or a less sort of maybe bureaucratical political company? And obviously, big companies need to have that structure and, and whatnot and that, and I respect that. Wouldn't it be great to sort of replicate this high-performing culture outside of Hayes, as, as it were at the time? So myself and business partner, who's a good friend of mine from school and university, 
uh, who was actually working in the mining industry, uh, we got talking about sort of doing that and ultimately we, we took that big leap of faith and you know, I guess the goal at that point in time was to sort of sit in that mid-space and, and what I mean by that mid-space is you've got a lot of the big global organisations that have got a global footprint, big balance sheets and capabilities to deliver various solutions you know at scale and at different locations and you've got the smaller organizations of the world at the other end of the spectrum that might have one to maybe 10 staff that are super relationship driven great retention of staff nimble flexible uh, relationship driven but they don't have the balance sheet or maybe a, a wider geographical footprint to help customers across a wider range of needs so we sort of thought we'd like to be the best of both worlds we'd try and sit in that middle space and not pretend to be the big big guys but you know we sort of wanted to have the relationship driven approach to that the small guys had and and, and nimbleness and, and that sort of thing but also be a little bit more robust and and uh, uh, sizable so you know if a, if a decent customer wanted a a larger solution we could sort of fund and, and manage that. So that was the sort of vision in the beginning and, and we really wanted to create uh, an environment where people could reach and exceed their potential. We felt like if we created a win-win environment, whether that's our commission structure, our commitment to develop them, creating a, an environment that people want to be part of, then we would win inadvertently, they would win and hopefully our customers and candidates would win. So that was the grand vision uh, in, in the beginning. All right. Fantastic. So you and your partner, is that Robbie McElrath? McElrath, yeah, that's yeah. right. So you and Robbie set up the business and it seems like things have just taken off. You've got 60 people across multiple offices in two countries. What have been some of the key elements of the business success? Yeah, I think now it's um, plus or minus uh, close to 100. Uh, oh, wow, um, okay. So man, I, I think certainly I think client partnerships has been a big part of it. Our first three customers that we started with are still with us today. Back when papers were relevant, we had a client paid advert on our very first weekend opening the business, which was good. And, and that customer, forever grateful, they uh, paid half that fee up front just to kick off. And I think they... They backed us and they believed in us and still a customer today, even though that company's morphed in, in a few different directions. So I think definitely the, the relationship-driven client partnership sort of side of things has been a big thing. Like organisations, you grow and, and there's some challenges with that. But within all of that, I think we've been lucky. We've got some long-standing people that have been with us for a good period of time. So I think that has certainly been a big part of our success and, I, and maybe we'll sort of touch on some of the benefits of retaining people later on the podcast, but uh, I definitely think that's been a big part of it. And I think other things has been, you know, Robbie and I have been ambitious and driven and, and all that sort of thing, but all companies, as they ebb and flow, they go through good times, more challenging times, and, and obviously cash flow and those sorts of things is critical. So I think even when we've gone through, you know, the really, really good times, you know, and then obviously had to navigate, you know, uh, changing markets and, and the likes, we've always been, I think, pretty sensible about utilisation of, of cash flow and keeping cash reserves and, and being sensible. So we've, we've been ambitious and entrepreneurial, but not recklessly. So I think that's probably stood us in good times, you know, where we've had to endure things like uh, correction of commodities markets and those sorts of things that um, has an impact. Uh, on a business that at that time was was highly leveraged to that environment. So I think, um, you know, there are probably a few things that sort of spring to mind. Absolutely. That's amazing. So if I can follow up on a couple of those things. So you mentioned client partnerships. I think every recruiter and every recruitment company in the world would value that, but it's easier said than done. How have you guys 
been able to create those long-standing client partnerships? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, it's actually not that hard to differentiate yourself in the world of recruitment. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people that are transactions, a lot of people that are full of BS. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you actually just come across and you're genuine and you're honest and you deliver on your promises, actually quite quickly you can rise to you know preferred supplier status. I remember when we entered... Uh, the Perth market back in um, 2008 was it was highly saturated, highly competitive. Commodities were up at that stage, and as a new player on the market, you know, within three months, I think we established ourselves with a lot of the uh, companies and clients over there uh, to become their you know number one or you know at least in the top three suppliers from nowhere. And I think that was just simply by understanding their needs and then delivering. And I think recruitment's just that simple. So. I think in, in recruitment, you've got to be good to deal with in terms of you've got to get on well with the customer and sort of interact well and have some maybe things in common and, and a little bit of rapport. But if you don't deliver, it's just a nice relationship that you don't get any sort of outcome. So I think we've always been big on A, trying to have a, a human-to-human sort of interaction with, with our client and be genuine and honest and sincere. But then also on the back end of that, make sure that you work critically hard to deliver. So I still get anxious every time we win a scope of work and I just jumped off a call before like that and, you know, this this commitment and accountability to deliver. So until we deliver, I, I don't feel comfortable. So I think we've really just focused on, you know, I guess uh, being good to deal with and, and direct well with the client but make sure we deliver as well. Sean, let me um, challenge you a little bit on that in the sense that for sure, there's some bad actors in the industry who tarnish everyone's reputation. And I think part of that is not deliberate. There's also a lot of rookies coming in and put under a lot of pressure without being given the training and the support and uh, just focus on the revenue, if you like. And so that can create a bad taste in the in the client's mouth. But like most of the clients I deal with are mature, experienced recruiters who mm-hmm. absolutely are genuine, honest, they, they're committed to delivering, and they want to have a partnership, but sometimes the clients won't let you work in that way. Yes. They want you to push you into this transactional box because that's what they're used to. And maybe we've done this to ourselves, you know, because of the factors you mentioned where you know, recruiters have under-delivered or they have been transactional in the way they conduct themselves and not relationship-driven, then clients are used to that. And so they assume we're all like that. And then that's the way that they're used to working. It can be very hard to break out of that and develop a genuine relationship. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's all true. Uh, some good uh, points you've made. Even, you know, it sort of takes you back to one particular customer, great customer. We were highly integrated in their business, workforce planning, strategy, open to ideas and, and different ways to approach the recruitment process, full access to their executive suite. And the partnership worked amazingly well. And, and, and I use that word partnership because I think it was win-win. And yeah. we were clear on what we did and they were clear on what they did. They went through an acquisition and they had a new senior HR person come in that was more of the transactional school of thought, mentioned the word partnership, and he said, we're not interested in partnerships. We have a need, you deliver, and that's what it is. So the relationship really, the dynamic change from a highly integrated partnership to a transactional one. And I think through that time, our business and their business probably grew apart a little bit and we become a bit disenfranchised because it, 
it just wasn't as enjoyable, frankly. To yes. deal with them was just harder. And then, uh, of course, that person moved on and uh, another person came in who we had a tremendous relationship and it went back to the partnership involved. And, and I always ask myself, like, if I was you know, on their side of things, would you not try and bring the right companies and partners close to your business to become advocates and you know, just real brand ambassadors for, for your organization rather than this transactional dynamic. So, I mean, everyone's got a different view on that and, you know, customer to customer, it varies, but I strongly advocate customers where they're willing and open to that. I mean, you can only advise them so much that be it stellar or be it someone else, you know, select one, two or three great companies in that space and bring them close and, and make them an, an extension of your business. And I can't help but feel that Everyone gets a better result as a, an outcome, but uh, yeah, uh, everyone's got different prerogatives. But I think the more integrated approach works, you know, well for every stakeholder in, in that sort of uh, situation. It's totally logical, and I think I've deduced part of the secret to your success, Sean. Is the way you just explained it right now? It's impossible for any intelligent person to refute that that would deliver a better outcome. So. Maybe it's down to the culture you're creating and the training that you're giving people that they're capable of forging those partnerships. So let's follow up on that and talk about the retention longevity of staff because that is the Achilles heel of the recruiting industry mm. is mm. we have such a high revolving door you know, staff attrition level as an industry. And if you can go against that trend and actually have people, you know, a core of consultants who have been with you for a while. That's incredibly powerful. How have you been able to do that? Yeah, firstly, I don't think it's easy and we certainly aren't immune to turnover and and not having people as long as we could or should. But I, I think we have, you know, managed to retain some great people despite the industry dynamics and that's been good for us and good for them. I think a lot of our success with the people that have stayed with us for a good period of time has been new to the industry individuals. So they've come in with maybe the attributes or some exposure to sales and we've brought them into stellar and sort of trained them up our way and exposed them to you know, our way of doing things and uh, a range of things, whether it's uh, external training. We've had uh, organisational psychologists uh, that sort of coach people. We've had... Uh, L&D personnel internally, we've had obviously a lot of on-the-job training and, and that sort of thing. So I think all of that has culminated in some of our best success stories, the people that have performed with us the best and last the longest within our organisation. And certainly our customers, and I think, benefit because I think recruitment is one of those industries that it's just not for everyone. And, you know, sometimes True. you think a person is the right fit and they get into it. And, you know, the reality of recruitment's not easy. I mean, it's... See, old cliche, it's not, it's not rocket science, but uh, there is an art to it. So it is incredibly hard. And I just don't think it's cut out for everyone. So I think we've definitely picked some people with the right attributes, but, you know, they got into it and they didn't enjoy it. So I think, you know, ongoing training development is a big thing for us. Uh, we've always been big on trying to understand and map out people's sort of career path, but also integrate, you know, some of their personal goals as well in terms of things like whether it's uh, engagement rings, houses, travel, whatever it is that's important to people and try and integrate. You know, I've always said that Stellar should be a vehicle to achieve outside of work and that's certainly how I see Stellar. I, I really love and enjoy 
you know, the journey with Stella, but ultimately the thing that matters most to me is my family and uh, Stella's been a wonderful vehicle to help, you know, support my family and, and many other families through the staff that we've got. So I think having an active interest in and hopefully try, trying to get a corporate objectives back to the person and sort of draw that, that correlation, I think that's been pretty key. So maybe there's some insights into that answer that um, sort of talked to the question you asked. Yeah, it's interesting because through this podcast and through, I mean, I've been doing this uh, advising and coaching recruiters and recruitment business owners for 19 years now. And one common theme with the growth companies is there is a preference for hiring inexperienced people, rookies, and training them in exactly the way that they want people to, to work. What percentage of the people that have lasted with you would you say were new to recruitment before joining Stellar? The number that sort of pops into my mind would be possibly as high as 80% of people that have stayed with us in the long term and been up the top end of our high achievers list, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. We have had some wonderful examples of people that have come from other organizations, but I think if we were to average it over time, I would have thought it would be somewhere in that 80% vicinity. So it takes a bit of effort up front to get them up and running and productive and efficient and trained up. The downstream benefits are huge. And I think otherwise it turns into a bit of a, a revolving door exercise where different people are headhunting. I'm sure I know our guys get plenty of headhunt calls consistently. You're constantly having to tap into the market and try and poacher and entice people to come across uh, further to people that are willing to come across but that may or may not be a good thing so yeah i think uh, we've always tried to promote from within so we're, we're always trying to bump people up and sort of as they reach one plateau try and create another opportunity and, and i think that's part of the retention as well is sort of yes. trying to keep pushing them and encouraging them and supporting them to extend themselves and grow themselves and i think when they're doing that they feel like they're making progress that leads to engagement if you've got that engagement you're a good chance to retain them Absolutely. So hiring the right people in the first place is incredibly important. Um, what you mentioned attributes, like you look for people with maybe some sales experience, but the having the right attributes, what are those attributes? The three things overarching we look for is uh, character, competitiveness, and above average intelligence. So mm. it's questionable as to whether or not I fall into that category. But anyway, <laughs> with the character, we're assessing are you a good human being? Are you respectful? Are you nice? Uh, how do you treat people that uh, you know might tr- uh, interact with you in reception or whatever the case is? If someone brings you a coffee or a drink, so you know what's their character like? Are they a nice human being? Are they respectful? Are they genuine? Those sorts of things. So that's important to us. Uh, competitiveness. I mean, look, we're in a competitive market, right? So we want people to demonstrate an element of competitiveness, drive, will to win, uh, succeed, challenge themselves, those sorts of things. And then I think if you've got you know, at least uh, above average intelligence, then you're coachable, you're malleable, you can get your head around sort of things. Uh, you can have articulate conversations with clients, candidates, other staff members, and you can continue to sort of grow and extend yourself. So they're the three things overarching everything that uh, we look for. And of course, we're looking for alignment with values, our three values, which are greatness, positivity, and leadership. So looking to interview against those things and see where there's evidence to sort of align with those things uh, also. Awesome. That all makes total sense. I love the attributes. How do you actually get evidence during the interview process of character, competitiveness, and intelligence? 
Well, I think, like I say, with, with character, I think, you know, through how they conduct themselves, you know, whether it's uh, – and we're, we're sort of watching people from the moment they walk in the building, so to speak. So if one of our administrators greets you in reception, we might sort of say, how were they? Were they nice? Were they polite? Or whatever the case is and, and those sorts of things through to how do you hold yourself in the – interview uh, as we sort of ask uh, questions around that uh, and also you know, b- behavioural questions about, you know, uh, talk to us about your last boss uh, or your current boss, um, you know, what's your relationship like, how would you describe them? So, you know, I think sometimes in the character, some people are quick to sort of throw their boss under the bus or be quite you know, <laughs> uh, negative or whatever the case is. Right. Others maybe say, well, look, you know, uh, some strong attributes or whatever the case, they might take some personal accountability for where they are and where they aren't. So, I think there's a little insights and little gems you sort of get through that process mm-hmm. on that. With competitiveness, we ask outright, are you a competitive person? And obviously, most people will, will generally say yes. But then we say, well, well, give us a bit of an example or evidence of, of being a competitive person. And you tend to sort of say, you know, we've had quite a few people sort of come out of sporting environments and those sorts of things. And, you know, obviously, there's a track record of success and, and those sorts of things. And we generally sort of have our interview process at least over sort of about four steps. So you start to see where there's holes in those stories, whether the character side or the competitive side of things. And likewise, obviously, the intelligence sort of side of things in terms of, you know, maybe sometimes you've got some educational markers or to give you an insight in terms of where they sit in that side of it. But I think you know, from an intelligent point of view, through a conversation, you know, you can reasonably ascertain, you know, someone's level of, of intelligence on that sort of side of it. And then back to the values Obviously, positivity, you can pick up in people's language, whether or not they're maybe a positive glass half empty or a glass half full in terms of some of the language they use, maybe some of the situations I've had to face in the past, whether it's dealing with adversity in those situations. So, yeah, we've got a series of questions that sort of tie back into them. And, you know, at the end of it, we've got a bit of a matrix system that we score against and we get different people involved in the recruitment process independent of you know the hiring managers or whatever as well and we encourage the person we're interviewing to interview them as well uh, mm. as in terms of our staff that go in to meet them and we want it to be transparent and ask them the tough questions and those are because it should be a transparent process i think by the end of that you get pretty clear and and sometimes, you know, we also look to get to the back end of all of that and, and we might have a social get-together. So, you know, they might come to a, an end-of-month wrap. They might come to our end-of-month drinks or whatever the case is. And some t- people do a wonderful job of performing through the interview process, but, you know, after a beer or, or a coffee or, or they perceive they've already got the job or whatever the case is, they drop their guard and then at the 11th hour you see, you know, their true character come out and you're like, well, okay, this is not what we thought we are getting into and then you, you, you've got to change that. So we certainly don't get it right all the time. Plenty of times we haven't, but yeah, I like to think some of that process has put us in good stead for some of the great people we've got on board, that's for sure. It sounds awesome. I think you've obviously honed this over over the years. What do you guys regard as a good retention, like number of people are still with you and performing, you know, after 12 months? Benchmark productivity in terms of what a business productivity we seek to have at 30K per month um, as a bit of a, uh, a lag sort of indicator. But we do uh, Gallup surveys annually to sort of check engagement. Obviously, we're mapping and, re- and, and sort of monitoring uh, turnover levels. We have pulse surveys that we sort of push out in between the annual engagement surveys, which is important on that sort of side of things. And, and of course, we've had uh, a number of people that have, uh, you know, well exceeded the, the 30K productivity and 
extended, you know, to some really impressive sort of performances. So, yeah, we sort of use a, a range of sort of metrics to map that performance engagement side of it. For externally, we use Net Promoter Score yeah. to sort of test the satisfaction of, of our customers and, and candidates tying back to an individual or manager. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to look at a range of different sort of metrics uh, further to I think if you're connected with your team, you know when they're up, you know when they're down, you know when they're engaged, you know when they're not engaged. And sometimes you can remedy that and intervene before maybe they choose to move on or whatever the case is. So, yeah, we're certainly not perfect, but we are conscious of trying to retain the right people. And I think Robbie and I sort of see it as a bit, you know, it's a stellar family. So, rightly or wrongly, that's sort of how we, we look at it. And, and you sort of care about their performance. And, and hopefully, they well, want to come to work and enjoy it because, you know, spend so much time together. So, we sort Absolutely. of do try and create an environment where people want to be part of. Yes. What I love about what you just said, obviously, the, the numbers are very important because people have to be able to contribute positively to the business. You've got a target there, and which I'll, I'll circle back to. But what I love is that you're actually measuring different things like the net promoter score to look at client and candidate satisfaction. Most recruitment companies are focused purely on the numbers, the, the sales, revenue, and, and yes. um, gross profit. They're not measuring the client satisfaction. So that's huge. The other thing is the internal engage, like the engagement internal employee surveys is mm-hmm. is uh, awesome as well. The fact that you're doing that. Do you have like is it an online tool you use for Net Promoter Score or what have you guys come up with as a reliable instrument for that? We use a provider called Setmetrics. So they've got obviously the software framework, dashboards, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, we, we, we just utilize that and have done, I think, from the get-go. Percentage of the link okay, no um, problem. for your show sure. notes, if you like. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. That um, so, that. yeah, so they've got some good, they've got some good uh, dashboards. It's a good, easy tool. And, yeah, I mean, look, sometimes you sort of question the cost, but I think if you save one customer through the year, I think it's voluntarily paid for itself. And, and right. I think it's just interesting to sort of understand, uh, you know, equally important to survey both clients and candidates because I think you get different sort of perspectives from the, yes. from the two. But, yeah, and I think that's probably, you know, one of my personal philosophies and hopefully the philosophy of the business is customer service is just so critical because uh, in a world where customer service is so rare and often poor, um, you can really set yourself apart with great customer service. Absolutely. You know, it's great when we're getting the, the nines and tens, but, you know, sometimes you get the sevens and eights and sometimes you get scores beneath that and, yes. and hopefully that's a bit of an, a dashboard alarm to go, hey, we've got an issue here and, and I'm yes. a big believer that sometimes it's a great opportunity to sort of tackle the the big issue and you, you can strengthen the relationship in, in terms of how you deal with it. Interesting. I mean, I'm sure there must be a few recruiting firms doing this, but I, it is unusual. Um, there is one who coincidentally is, is based in Edinburgh and uh, where I live. And what they've done is they've actually tied the commission to the, not just the, you know, the revenue or the gross profit, but also to the client satisfaction survey yep. results. So that in order, I mean, of course, you still get paid for making placements, but in order to get the top level of bonus, you need to also uh, score well on the client candidate uh, satisfaction so that there's a real, like the, it's in alignment. So it's not just all about the money. It's equally about making sure that clients are are happy and candidate well. Yeah, no, definitely for some of our leaders, we've integrated MPS metrics uh, as part of their bonus framework and incentive framework. So 
so yeah, and, and I just think that you know, irrespective of that, you know, particularly in in smaller towns, and let's just call Brisbane a small town in terms of there's not that many degrees of separation, and yes. some of the other places we work in, if you're not performing and keeping customers happy, then news travels fast, and you know it's it's hard to succeed. Uh, conversely, if you're a great recruiter with great your reputation sort of precedes you, then it's easy to open doors. It's easy to create opportunity, and often an opportunity finds you. It's just a a far better place to be. So we're certainly passionate about customer service. Um, do we get it right all the time? Definitely not. But I think uh, Satmetrics and MPS allow us to have a bit more of a finger on the pulse in terms of getting some tangible data. And, and I think like you've seen with Uber, you know, when people feel somewhat accountable or transparent to, you know, feedback that's coming back in their direction, I think they're just a little bit more mindful of that in terms of how they conduct themselves. So it's been a good tool for us and, and I think it will uh, probably continue to be. All right. Interesting. So I read in Global Recruiter Magazine, you were quoted as saying the ability to attract, train, develop, and retain great consultants as one of the single biggest differentiators to any business. And we've kind of touched on that, but uh, do you have any other pearls of wisdom about attracting and training and developing great consultants? I don't think there's any silver bullet there, but I think there's definitely obviously a tangible link to sort of productivity and and profitability and retaining the right people. And maybe probably the only add-on, we've sort of gone to a a new trial just recently to go for a nine-day fortnight. And uh, with that, part of that is obviously to retain people, but part of that is to attract people and do something just a little bit different. Yeah, I I just think that uh, at the end of the day, as, as recruiters or recruitment business, our only real asset. Uh, that we own and have as differentiators our people. And if you've got a bunch of great people, then chances are you're, you're a red hot chance to be successful. If you don't, it's super hard to compete. It's not like you own a mining lease or IP or anything that's got high barriers to entry and people come and go, but you've still got the, the, the core asset. So I just think it's super important. And, and we've had some really positive feedback already around our nine-day fortnight. It's for us to prove that that's a, a good thing in terms of uh, productivity and retention, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, we're, the, the, the key driver around that nine-day fortnight initiative, further some of the other initiatives we've got is uh, retaining and attracting great people. I'm sorry, I totally missed what you just said. What are you calling it? Something you're trialing? So we're trialing a nine-day fortnight. Oh, nine-day so, fortnight. Okay. Yeah. Ah, so um, uh, people can choose uh, a day off uh, every fortnight. And okay. um, we've trialed this since the start of January. And we just sort of thought that uh, – and some people, uh, me included, are still doing some work on that day and being attentive to customer needs or internal needs and all that sort of stuff, which is fine. But it's been super nice to have that extra day, a fortnight, to you know, take your kids to school or hang out with your significant other or do some of those life admin things that you would otherwise do in your weekend. We've seen some of the, the data and the benefits globally around you know, uh, organisations can actually raise their productivity uh, and the likes as a result. So it sort of turns out to be a win-win. So we're running this trial, we're running this experiment and we're determined to make it right and, and sort of uh, who knows where from there. Cool. I mean, I think the key to that, Sean, is whether the experiment works or not, you guys are innovating and you're trying to come up with different ideas all the time to you know promote the welfare and that and the happiness of your engagement of your staff, right? So that's got to count for a lot. Hundred percent. Speaking of personal development, I can see that you have invested a lot in your own development. You've done programs with MIT and Harvard. Why has that been important to you, and what's been the business benefit? 
Well, I think both Robbie and I have always been big on seeking to reach our potential, and I'm not sure you ever get there because it sort of changes over time in terms of you know, picking up new skills and, and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I mean, uh, we first did a professional development course, I think, the year after, yeah, 2007, the year after we started. And then I've just become inquisitive about, you know, how do I grow and develop myself with your thing. Most organisations will sort of, they won't outgrow the competence of the leadership team and, and that sort of thing. So, right. yeah, I've always been inquisitive about becoming the best version of myself. And with that, you know, our our staff are doing the same. And, and I've always had a big philosophy around learning from other people's mistakes. So, you know, some of the business uh, case studies or conversations you have with some of the talented people in places like MIT and Harvard are just Awesome. You, you pick up so much from that um, and hopefully that sort of saves you or, or, or uh, creates opportunity uh, moving forward on that sort of. But, yeah, I, I think personally, Robbie and I are just both big on reaching potential and, and with that, you know, we've become passionate about trying to help our staff do the same. So I think individually we're that way inclined and we've really tried to foster that across the, the wider organisation. Sean, you said something really interesting, which was that your staff are unlikely to outgrow the competence of the leadership team you know, I had not really thought of it that way, but upon reflection, I see this a lot where it's really the leaders who are limiting the growth of their people because they're not continuing to develop. They're trying to train their team up to their level rather than constantly pushing themselves to grow and reach their full potential as well. So that is really interesting. Was this an online program or did you physically go to Massachusetts for this um, learning? No, uh, Boston in every instance. So, yeah, the uh, MIT course was a course over three years for about a week at a time. And, okay. and actually the, the program I've started at Harvard is uh, a nine-year program for wow. uh, just shy of a week at a time. So yeah, it's a bit of a supercharge. You get some uh, amazing resources as part of that. And, yeah, yeah, you also meet some amazing people that are super talented and energetic and like-minded. So Wow, you are committed because you're traveling halfway around the world to do this. So that's impressive. I think we're going to have to do two parts here, Sean, because there's, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> you have your own podcast, which is cool. I think this is catching on, but still not many recruiting firms are, are doing it. You've interviewed some fantastic guests. Vern Harnish was one yeah. um, founder of the Young Entrepreneurs Organization and Association of Collegiate Entrepreneurs. I actually was a member of ACE when I was in university, and I heard Vern speak a couple of times at conferences. You've also had the captain of the All Blacks. You've had like some amazing leaders and people. What inspired you to take on a podcast? Because as I know from experience, it's it's a lot of work. I think firstly, uh, I'm inquisitive. I'm inquisitive to understand. That's why I love reading autobiographies or biographies. I love trying to understand why people have become successful. So everyone's got a different formula and, and that sort of thing. So I think firstly, I would almost do it for free in so much as I just love Speaking to people and understanding how they become successful. So that was the right. first driver. Absolutely. The second driver, I think, was if I can share that on a wider scale than just me, then hopefully others will benefit on that sort of side of things. And I think, you know, it's just a way to interact with the market differently than just typical recruitment activity and, and hopefully offering some value in that regard. And it sort of ties into our broader sort of marketing strategy and you know, that sort of stuff, content generation. Etc. So we also do other things where we have sort of a different events where we get speakers come in and we invite our clients and candidates along, etc. To those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I think it's just a, a different way to sort of interact 
interact with the market and add value and, and hopefully everyone uh, learns one or two things in the process. So, yeah, I love the podcast and personally I love listening to different podcasts. Yeah, that's pretty much been the, the key driver of, of why I chose to go down that path. I think we are have shared the exact same philosophy because I would do this even if there was no branding or, or sort of marketing yeah. benefit than just the value that you get from interviewing successful people and learning from them is, uh, is huge. So your current theme is on the growth mindset. I'm actually currently reading the book Mindset by Carol Dweck, yep. you know, sort of on the actual research evidence supporting the importance of mindset over talent or ability to bring a success and the idea that, you know, there's these two mindsets, the fixed mindset or a growth mindset, and people who have a growth mindset are more likely to continue working hard despite setbacks. And that really speaks to me. I named this podcast The Resilient Recruiter. It's certainly tied into that idea. What was your relationship to this material? Why have you chosen growth mindset as a theme for your most recent uh, season on the podcast? Mindset's just so critical, and I think what I sort of uh, I've learned over time, and speaking to some of these amazingly successful people, is they're not always the most talented or intelligent people, but what they tend to have in common to your theme around resilience or that growth mindset is just that mindset to you know uh, navigate the challenges, to find solutions, to weather the storm, to back themselves, to believe in themselves. Uh, I think uh, Steve Wall, the former Australian cricket captain, he said, once you get to a certain level, it's 90% mental and 10% talent. I just think that personally, the mindset is uh, a massive differentiator to all aspects of life. So why wouldn't we spend time to try and understand uh, how our mind works and better get our mind working for us because it has such a massive impact in all aspects of life. So. I think I was about the age of 20 when uh, I realised my mindset wasn't working that well for me and I said to myself, oh, this has got to change, it's got to be different and I want it to be different and I think upon that moment of choosing to want to master the mind, so to speak, or understand the mind and have it working for me, I embarked on you know, a bunch of different things and some of the stuff I've talked about already uh, or uh, in terms of how to do that. But I just think that in time, my view is in time, hopefully people will have a mental skills coach, the same way they might see a PT or a physio or a doctor or whatever the case is, because I think it has such a massive impact. So, yeah, we sort of themed that uh, series of the podcast in line with that because I'm personally super interested in it. And I think there's a, a lot to be gained for people working on their mindset if they're interested in that. Brilliant. By the way, how can people find your podcasts? So, you can find us in the um, Apple Podcast Store, Spotify. We release everything uh, generally via LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. as well, or our website also. Gil uh, Gilberto, who helps me put the podcast together, um, he's probably doing some other cool stuff behind the scenes in terms of how we distribute it. But if you look on Spotify, search my name on Spotify or the Apple Podcast Store, um, you'll certainly find me. So feel free to subscribe Great. if there's an interest there. Yeah, definitely. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. Sure. It's called The Stellar Podcast, right? We've been running two podcasts, sort of okay. the growth, growth mindset uh, component, and before that was the Inspirational Leaders podcast in terms of the, the uh, theme for that period okay. of time. And then we had uh, another one to the side, the Stellar Recruitment podcast, but we've just been brainstorming. We're just going to amalgamate the two. I think it's been a little bit sort of confusing in terms of which, okay. which one do I follow. So the best one to follow at this point in time, and we're going to merge it into that one, which is the sort of the more prevailing one, is the uh, Growth Mindset podcast. But I, I believe if you search my name, you'll find me. Awesome. All right, Sean, that sounds brilliant. 
something that you guys are doing, which is super cool and, you know, really elevates the sort of level of inspiration within the business is this idea of changing lives. And you recently were celebrating having made 20,000 placements as a business. And that campaign was called 20,000 Lives Changed. Can you speak a little on why you just like are labeling it that way and what impact that's had in terms of, you know, the engagement from the team? I don't know if your listeners um, may and some may not familiar with the concept called Big Hairy Audacious Goals. Yes. Uh, or BHAG. So I think Jim Collins, the um, business commentator and author, uh, sort of pioneered it. If not, yep. you know, obviously people like uh, Vern, et cetera. So we, back in, I think, 2011, 2012, we were sort of thinking about, you know, what is that BHAG for our business? And, and of course, you sort of think about different things like revenue, headcount, profitability, temps working, all those sorts of things. And, and they're all they're all good. They're all uh, really meaningful and all the rest of it in their own right. But we sort of wanted to choose a bit more of a humanistic sort of component. And uh, we felt like measuring how many placements we make and uh, the lives we change in the process is a more humanistic sort of component. And it's mm. something that anyone in our organization, sales or others, can connect to. And, uh, you know, there's just so many wonderful stories of people that we've been able to help and, and the impact that's had on their life has just been so cool. So, we chose 20,000 lives in terms of the number we wanted to hit, and it was a pretty sort of steep, ambitious trajectory. But um, we got there. We got there ahead of time, um, which is cool. Got there in 2019. It was sort of actually the goal sort of stretched out to um, to 2020. So, yeah, I think it was just a, a nice metric to drive towards and a humanistic one. And, you know, at the end of the day, recruiters do, you know, uh, hopefully help enhance people's careers, which enhance answers their quality of life and, and has a big impact on them and their, their wider family or, or network. So that, that was sort of the, the key driver to go towards uh, that particular metric. Absolutely. In fact, if you think about it, it's more than 20,000 lives, isn't it? Because you've got the lives of yes. the hiring manager and their oh. career trajectory. Then you've got yep. the families of both the, you know, the, the manager and the uh, individual you're placing. It's probably five times that number at least. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. And in terms of the, uh, that's the immediate impact. But then yeah. if you look at the ripple effect in terms of those uh, that are uh, impacted by that particular person, then yeah, it's obviously far greater. So I thought about it that way, but that's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, Sean, for sharing your experience and your insight today. I've really, really have enjoyed learning from you and let's do it again another time. Yeah, fantastic. Really appreciate you reaching out and having me part of the show. So wish you all the best in terms of what you're doing as well. Thanks, Sean. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. You guys know that I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy. And uh, I've not done the Stoic thought for the day for a while, but today it seems particularly relevant in light of some of the ideas that Sean has been sharing with us. So today I wanted to tell you guys about a book that Both Sean and I have discussed, and I highly rate it. The book is called Mindset by Carol Dweck. Dr. Dweck is one of the world's leading researchers in social and developmental psychology. And this research has now been so well evidenced over the last decades that it's finally filtered into our school system. And my kids have actually been learning about it in school, which I love. Changed days from when I was a student. Dr. Dweck has researched a critical difference in the mindset of high achievers, Specifically, it hinges on one belief that people have about themselves. And this single belief permeates every aspect of your life without you even necessarily being aware of it. And it has a profound effect 
on to what extent you fulfill your potential. So the view you adopt of yourself alters the course of your life. And that belief is as follows. If you believe that your qualities such as intelligence or aspects of your personality are fixed, as in they're carved in stone, that's called a fixed mindset. Whereas if you have a growth mindset, that's where you operate from the belief that your qualities such as intelligence or personality characteristics can improve and develop with determined effort, with strategy, with training, with help from others. People with a fixed mindset need to constantly prove that they possess whatever trait, let's say it's intelligence. So what that means is they avoid challenge because they don't want to fail. Whereas someone with a growth mindset welcomes challenge. And this is where it overlaps with stoicism. They're more resilient. They see failure or challenge as an opportunity to grow and to improve. So when confronted with the same problem, the growth mindset person would think, yes, I love a challenge. So whether you're an entrepreneur, a salesperson, or a parent, I highly, highly recommend this book. Let me know if you pick it up and what you think of it. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. Listen, I know how busy recruiters are, and so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights that you can apply to improve your business. So remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you really want to help me reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And if you do leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so that I can personally thank you. Until next time, take care and have an awesome day.